You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with Travis Watts about getting started in real estate and growing that to becoming a full-time passive investor, as well as other passive income opportunities. Travis is a full-time real estate investor and also the director of investor relations at Ashcroft Capital. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Travis Watts. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Travis Watts. Welcome to the show, Travis. Hey, Robert. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. For those listening that may not know who you are, walk us through your story and how you got to where you are today. Oh, man. So that's about a 30-minute story, but let's cut that down to maybe five. <laughs> Basically, I, uh, I started more or less... I'll give you the short version. I started as a, just a W-2 employee. Did not know what I wanted to do. None of my jobs ever really resonated or I was never passionate about it. It wasn't very fulfilling. So I knew long-term I wasn't going to last in the so-called corporate world. So I picked up real estate investing in 2009. I started just by buying a single-family home that I personally lived in, got some government tax credits, house hacked that with some roommates, and started realizing really the power of passive income and cash flow. And so that really inspired me to kind of get the ball rolling and take that a lot more serious. And back in 2009, I really didn't know what I didn't know. And so I didn't have a big network. I hadn't read a ton of books or anything on the subject of, of real estate. So I did some fix and flips. I did some buy and holds, did some vacation rentals, kind of had my hands in a lot of single family activity that was fully active, taking up a lot of my time. And in this process, I actually took on a W-2 job working 100-hour work weeks in the oil industry, which often resulted in me being away from home for long periods of time. And I just realized you know, that's not going to be sustainable uh, as far as a real estate strategy and, and a career for that matter. So the more active I got, the more properties I got under my belt, the more I just got frustrated and overwhelmed and stressed out. And uh, so around 2015, I just kind of did some soul searching, went back to the drawing board, and I thought, man, I've got to be passive. And if that means giving up real estate altogether, that's what it means. And if it means you know REITs or the stock market or whatever, I just got to find a way to get hands off because it's killing me. And I found out about real estate syndications. So a bunch of investors pooling money together to buy larger assets for sustainable, predictable cash flow. That literally changed my life. I liquidated my entire single family portfolio. I completely shifted over to syndication investing specifically for passive income and to be hands off. Nowadays, I'm a full time limited partner syndication investor, right? In different types of deals. That brings us to today. Before we dive into what you're doing to invest passively, I want to talk a little bit more about your days as an active investor. Talk to us a bit more about those specific details. What did that journey look like? What were you doing to acquire properties? And what did your portfolio look like? I'd been working, first of all, since I was 15 years old. Always a good budgeter, always saved a lot of money, 
very diligent, always kept a little tracker of where things are, you know, income in and expenses out. In addition to that, my parents had done everything they could do to save for college. They really wanted me to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. I ended up getting a scholarship to go at least the first two years. And I, so I dedicated to that. And I'm like, fine, you know, it's basically free college. I'll try it. And so I pocketed that, that little chunk of money in addition. And uh, man, all I could handle was two years. That just wasn't for me. You know, I knew it wasn't for me in the beginning, but I had to go through the motions. So I took my savings and I took that little nest egg and that became my down payment for my very first single family home. So we're talking about $20,000 total. That was a down payment. Got a $8,000 government tax credit to purchase my first home. That was something back in 09 with the collapse and incentives to get people to buy homes. From there, it was just, it was all experimenting. Man, I had no game plan. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that one day I wanted enough passive income to take over my lifestyle expenses, right? So I could be quote unquote financially free. Didn't know how to get there, but that's how I started. Were you buying only single family properties? Yeah. When I say single family, just to clarify, at a combination of condos, townhomes, and literally single family dwellings independently outside of an HOA and that kind of thing. So yes, at, at the time, 2009 through 2015. Yes. And were these all local properties to you? Yeah, that's the other thing. So I grew up in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, home to Colorado State University. So those first few properties were in the area. I had a lot of students that were renting with me and from me. And then I ended up going kind of up and down the front range of Colorado. So if anybody, any of your listeners are familiar, everywhere from Commerce City and Henderson and Brighton and Denver and stuff like that. So yeah, they were all in Colorado. Did you ever do any multifamily by the time you got into or before you got into passive or was everything single family? So everything was single family. I think logically that would have been my next step had I not transitioned to syndications and learned about that avenue. I probably would have said, oh, I'm going to start doing like a duplex and then upgrade to a quad and then an 8 and a 12 and a 30. And I probably would have gone that path. But no, I, I never did it. How many single families did you get under your belt? before you decided to go passive? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that as far as like a total number. Uh, because like I said, I had different strategies going on. And some were a lot shorter term, just buy and fix up and sell. Others were holds for anywhere from one year to three years. Vacation rentals, I was in for about two years. Just to give you a ballpark number, maybe somewhere around like six, seven properties at any given time as I was trying to actively manage the portfolio. And uh, even at that stage, it was like, I didn't see how I was going to double that, for example, with ambitions to go to 50 properties or 100. It was like, I, I could see no conceivable way of doing that. And so, what does your portfolio look like today, albeit just a small piece of each property you own as an LP? But what are mm -hmm. those properties that you're investing in? What do those look like? Yeah, that's a great question. The majority of my portfolio is in value-add multifamily syndication. So we're talking about 200 to 600 unit apartment buildings where I'm a co-owner. Maybe I'm a 1% owner, a 2% or 3% owner on that project. Done 26 as of today as a limited partner. And I also dedicate about 20% of my portfolio to other types of passive investments outside of real estate. So kind of in the same syndication model though. So I don't know how many of those are, but a few. What do those look like? What other types of syndication models are there out there other than real estate? 
Syndication really is just, like I said earlier, the, the pooling of money from multiple individuals to buy something or to do something with that, that money so that one person doesn't have to come up with millions of dollars out of pocket. Other types of investments that I invest in for passive cash flow that pay monthly are like uh, ATM investing, note lending, note investing, distressed debt investing, and uh, things like that. So I'm cash flow focused and I focus primarily on things that distribute monthly if possible. So who is passive real estate investing good for and who might it not be good for? Yeah, excellent. And this takes, you know, it all starts with self education and and self discovery, right? Who are you and what's right for you and what are your goals and, you know, what's going to help you get to those goals? Some people, quite honestly, are very hands on, very handy. They like to do their own work. It's kind of a creative avenue. Maybe fix and flips are definitely the right fit for that individual. But you also have to kind of look at risk and reward. and, And there's other factors besides, you know, I like working on houses. I would say a lot of the investors that do what I do don't exactly have my story per se. It's a lot of working professionals, engineers, VPs, CEOs, business owners, doctors, dentists, lawyer, attorney. It's people focused on a professional career that they're usually good at. They usually don't want to quit their job. They're just focused on something else. And so they're making more income than what they're using. So that excess needs to be parked somewhere into an investment. And a lot of folks don't want all of their capital in, say, the stock market, right? With the volatility and you follow market cycles and things like that. I mean, it may not be great to have a huge lump sum just there. So this could be just another avenue to park some capital, 50K, 100K, something like that, just to kind of diversify your portfolio. The other group of folks probably have more of a story like mine in that they're looking to achieve enough passive income to exceed their lifestyle expenses. And so that could also be a great avenue for it. I know a lot of people do different index funds and bonds and other things, but quite frankly, there's better returns to be had in most cases in real estate. So specifically in passive real estate. Do you have to be an accredited investor to invest in all of these passive deals that you're talking about? That's a great question. And for those that that aren't familiar, an accredited investor is basically a high net worth, high income individual. You can qualify of one of two ways, million dollar net worth, excluding any equity in your, your primary residence, you're an individual, you can qualify on income, 200000 per year income for the last couple of years, expectations to do the same in this year. And if you're married, it's 300000 in income for the last two years, expectations to hit that in the current year. A lot of the offerings in the syndication space are for accredited investors. It comes down to the sponsor and the deal specifically, and which regulation they're operating under. There's a thing, you know, 506C, as in Charlie, which is accredited investors only, period no exceptions. Then there's 506Bs, which I would say the majority of folks are doing 506B as in Bravo. They can take what's called a sophisticated investor who is non-accredited but does have the ability to understand the risks involved and what it is they're exactly investing in, whether they have to use a team of advisors to learn this stuff or a family office or something like that. But it just depends. The, The short answer is no, you don't have to be accredited. Longer answer is a lot of deals are accredited only. So <laughs> it takes some networking, I guess, to figure it all out. And is that how you're finding your deals? Are you just networking and eventually meeting these syndicators? The best way, in my opinion, is through networking. And if you're not 
kind of that face-to-face person or you don't want to go to some local real estate meetups or seminars or whatever, jump on some online forums as well. Forums like say Bigger Pockets, just as one example, and start searching for, for that kind of stuff. Either accredited investor opportunities, non-accredited investor opportunities, you'll come up with folks that are doing all the above. So you can find them in different ways. But another part of that regulation is that you can generally solicit or advertise a 506C, which is accredited only, which kind of gives you that illusion when you're looking online that maybe all of these are only accredited investor opportunities. You cannot advertise a 506B publicly. So it kind of takes that relationship. You've got to run into these folks somehow. And unless you're online nonstop, I guess <laughs> networking is probably the best. And so once you found a sponsor to potentially invest with, how are you vetting them? And how do you know that they're someone that's not only trustworthy, but they're also a talented investor? Yeah, also a great point. This has been a big learning curve. This is kind of the the lessons learned section, I guess, of this interview. So the first mistake that I made when I started getting into syndications is I was putting far too much emphasis on a pro forma, projected returns, anticipated what-ifs, maybes down the road, that kind of stuff. And a lot less emphasis on the team behind the scenes, what their track record is, their experience, who's on the team, have they done this before? How heavy is the lift, meaning the business plan? Are they just slapping some paint on something or are they fully gut renovations on all the units? So short answer to that is I look for teams nowadays as my number one criteria. And then I look at the market second, and then I look at the deal third. So it's kind of the opposite of what I used to do. To your point, do you align with these folks? In other words, if, if you're a, a value-add investor, you believe in fixing things up and creating new value in the property versus are you into new development and brand new construction and luxury high-end stuff? And, and everybody's different. Everybody's risk tolerance is different. So it's, again, back to looking inward. What are you all about? And what's your risk tolerance and you know why and, and all that kind of stuff? And then finding groups out there that align with that mission. The one that aligned with myself and my wife was Ashcroft Capital, who now I'm part of their investor relations team. Been investing with Ashcroft, Joe Fairless's firm, about four years now in nine of their deals currently. And the reason was everything that they do was everything that we put on paper that we wanted to look for in a syndication group. And as we found that, we just did deal after deal after deal with them. So it starts with looking inward. Once you've found the sponsor that you're willing to invest with, do you just continually invest with them multiple times over and over and over? Or are you diversifying your portfolio across multiple sponsors? Always been a firm believer in diversifying, no matter what we're talking about, right? Have a little bit of exposure everywhere. So I believe in diversification geographically, asset class, different teams, all that kind of stuff. So Ashcroft's just one of the the teams that that we resonate really well with that we continue investing for many different reasons. But short answer is we we have investments with I think 14 different firms in total. So I started with doing one with a team here and one with a team here and one with a team here until I could kind of learn who the key players are and which deals outperformed others. And then I would go back to those overperforming deals and kind of double down and, and do another deal with them. So I kind of went into hyper diversification mode. Now I'm kind of honing it back into you know, I got a handful that I really enjoy working with. Outside of just choosing different sponsors, do you diversify your portfolio? Are you choosing different asset types, strategies even? 
Yeah, there's a great quote. I forget exactly who who said it. It's probably like a Robert Kiyosaki, you know, rich dad, poor dad author. But when your education goes up, your risk goes down. So I understand the asset class a lot more than I did years ago. And I understand a lot more of the inner workings and the ins and outs. And because of that, personally, I feel comfortable having about 80% of my portfolio and B and C class value add multifamily among different sponsors. I consider that being diversified. Whereas a lot of folks might argue you're all in real estate, you're all in the same asset type. And that's not true diversification. But uh, I do have, like we talked about before, some ATM investments, distressed debt, note lending funds, other kind of cash flow investments. So I do have some other exposure out there. I'm not all tied into one thing, but just understanding kind of the risk and the reward ratios, I think it's a great place to be personally, even through a recession, which has been my focus about the last three and a half years, is I want recession resistant asset classes to invest in. Which markets specifically are you currently targeting for your investments? I like to be open-minded. I like to not just say, I'm only investing in Colorado and that's the end of that. Right? I grew up here. I know it. And that's the only market. I kind of look at things on a macro scale. For example, migration patterns. Where are people moving from? And then where are they moving to? And then why? And I look at things like taxes, like Texas and Florida are, are no income tax states, you know, and a lot of people are moving to Florida from high tax states like New York, New Jersey. And a lot of people are moving to Texas from California as an example. So I do track that kind of stuff. And just from a very high level, I've kind of made a determination that, for example, right there, I like Texas and I like Florida. Those aren't the only two markets I've invested in and they're not the only two I'm going to stick with, but they've got some great sub markets and I think some great growth potential to them. I currently live in the New England area and I live in a state with no income tax, which is great, but I still I invest long distance. I do most of my investing in Texas as well. So definitely understand that market and I like that market myself. How much emphasis are you putting on location when you're looking for deals to find? I mean, you're not the active investor, right? You're not going out saying I'm targeting deals in these cities or these states. You more or less have to go where the syndicators have deals. And so are you more interested in the deal itself? And then if the location's good, then you'll go with it? Or is it, you know, I'm looking for these specific markets and then once a deal pops up, then I'll invest there? Or how important is that location to you? Yeah, I really do take that order of number one's the team track record experience and philosophy and the types of deals they do in general. So that's always number one. Number two is the market. I think that Markets can do wonderful things even with a butchered up business plan, even with a brand new group that doesn't know what they're doing. If you're in the right market at the right time, the deal can still come through. That's happened in my experience. So to answer your question, I go, I go macro scale. I just say, hey, Texas in general, maybe not every market, maybe not every little place, but in general, I like it. So then one of my groups comes up with a deal and says, okay, we're doing this deal in Lubbock, Texas. You know, I don't know anything about it. I don't live there. I've never been there. So then I let them fill me in on their research and why they think that submarket is going to do really well. And if I resonate with that and I agree and I think you know, it makes a lot of logical sense and it's got diversified employment and blah, 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 lots of jobs, then I'll go along with it. On the flip side, 
there's some markets I'll, I'll almost never do a deal in, you know, <laughs> maybe a you know, Manhattan or San Francisco. It's just not my type of thing, not to, to bash on those, but uh, there's definitely opportunities to be had, but it doesn't fit my risk tolerance and my goals and what I'm looking for. What are some of the mistakes that you've made as an investor, both as an active investor, so back when you were doing your own deals, and mm-hmm. also as a passive investor today? As an active investor, I think I could give you a CVS receipt full of mistakes. <laughs> but I think I didn't do much right in the active realm. I just, I just wasn't that good at it. I was going through the motions. Colorado had a great market. That was definitely helping add a cushion. Even if I made some mistakes, it's like I could just sell the property two years later and make a profit. But the biggest part of that was realizing that I shouldn't have been in the active space, right? What business did I have managing tenants, collecting rent, being my own little accountant and saving and filing all my receipts and studying up on what I can write off and what I can't? I mean, there there was just so much stuff that in hindsight, it's like, what was I thinking, man? Like, I should have been hiring that stuff out and I shouldn't have been doing it. So, a lot of my mistakes were around just being in the wrong strategy. On the passive side, it was basically what I alluded to earlier. A couple deals I had done early on, I wasn't paying attention to the team or the track record. I was taking these these projections at face value and saying, oh, well, hey, this one says I'm going to make 10% for the next 5 years. I guess I'll just sign up for that. And then a year and a half later, you know, and the, the business plan has been butchered up and the returns are stopping and the, the whole thing's not working out. And really, it came down to not knowing the team and not knowing their experience level. So if you could go back and do it again, would you have skipped the active side of your investing? Would you have just saved, saved, saved all your money until you could have invested in passive deals? Or would you go through that active piece of it again? That's a great question. You know what? At the end of the day, if you're going to be a passive investor, it comes down to having enough investable assets, enough money to make it make sense. You know, I always use this example. If if all you have to invest period, is $25,000. You probably don't want to be a passive investor because you're going to get this you know, $125 a month cash flow. Big deal. You get to cover your cell phone bill passively. And it's just not that inspiring. I don't think that would have motivated me to push on and continue. I think at the point where you've got substantial assets to invest, it makes a lot of sense. When you start seeing you know, a thousand a month or three thousand a month, four thousand a month. Now all of a sudden it's like, hey, wait a second. In a couple of years, I could replace my job with this income. I could retire early with this income. You know, this is starting to mean something. So I would say focus first on income and saving and investing and investing in yourself, right? Your career, business, fix and flip and housing, whatever it is you do for money, it doesn't matter. But but focus on that and getting your money right. And then when you have enough think about passive because really at the end of the day, how else are you going to retire? Everyone's got to go passive anyway. Everyone needs cash flow and income anyway at a certain point. Why not start that process early and then maybe retire early or something like that with it? If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice when you were just getting started, what would that piece of advice be? Or what number one piece of advice would you give somebody that's new to investing today? Honestly, I would say start with yourself and looking inward. I mean that maybe that sounds really just basic and obvious, but it's not. I mean, really like write this stuff down, like get a couple books, I don't know, listen to Tony Robbins or something, right? Get inspired, get motivated. 
write down your goals. Where do you want to be in 5 years, 10 years, 20 years? What age do you want to retire? What do you want to have in life? What does that look like? Do you want to travel more? Do you want a family? Blah, blah, blah. And really try to find a model that makes sense for you and what your goals and ambitions are. And at the moment that I finally realized I wanted to retire early, I wanted to travel a lot, I didn't want to be bogged down, I want this, all of a sudden syndications came into play. It was like, there's your solution. But that's not the solution for everybody. So it's just about looking inward and soul searching, I guess. I know you're a big proponent of time freedom. Let's talk about that a little bit. What is time freedom? I'm a huge advocate of time freedom. I don't know who coined this term. Time freedom to me, I guess everyone's got a different take. It's the ability to do what you want, when you want, as much as you want with your time. It's literally freedom over your time. And and so when does this occur and what is that all about? When you have enough passive income, truly passive income rolling in that you didn't have to do anything for, whether you had sat on your couch for a month or whether you had been vacationing for a month, that money's coming in, coming in no matter what. And that exceeds your lifestyle expenses. I mean, your, your mortgage payment and all your bills and blah, blah, blah. You now have freedom over your time. Do you want to keep doing the job that you have? Or do you want to quit and pursue something different? Do you want to do more charity work? Do you want to switch to part-time work? Do you want to retire early? It's endless possibilities. And time freedom to me is what it's all about. This isn't really a money game. It's not about hoarding cash. It's not about buying mansions and Lamborghinis. It's unless that's really your your thing. But <laughs> but really everybody's different. But it's just about doing what you want to do with your time. And that's what passive income can do for you. That's what it's done for me. And that's why I do it. I do have to say I'm a very big car guy myself. So I do want a supercar. You know, I don't care about the <laughs> mansions fine. or, you know, yeah. a private jet or anything like that. I've always liked cars, so that's one thing I want. But it's that car and time freedom that I'm looking for as well that I think probably a lot of people are. When you mention passive, I'm curious to hear what you mean and how you would define passive. And the reason I ask that is because I get that question a lot from listeners is what is actually passive? If you have to work on something for a few weeks, a few months, maybe even a year to build an asset, but then it's passive from then, do you consider that a a passive income stream? Or is it something that you just put money into once, like maybe a syndication, and then it's solely passive from there? Where does that line get drawn for a passive income source? You know, everyone's definition is going to be a little different. I don't try to look at things in like a black and white sense. Like if you cross that line, it's no longer a passive deal. Like for example, a business, you can have an active business, like you're running a, a franchise and you work in it and you're the boss and you're blah, blah. well, it's obviously not passive, right? Because you you're an employee, you work in it. Or you could buy a franchise and hire everybody to go run it and then go sit at home and do nothing in the business. That's a passive business. So it's it's really about, you know, and, and stock market investing depends, right? If you're trading stocks every single day and you're watching the markets go up and down and you're putting in all your <laughs> buys and holds in the whole deal, that's active. If you go buy an S&P 500 index fund and you go sit on it for 20 years and you don't look at it, that's passive. So it, it's really about your time and it's how much of that time. And you know, I don't know what the, what the right answer is here, but on a passive deal, in my opinion, like a syndication, I put in X amount of hours up front, vetting the team, vetting the deal, making a decision putting it all together, signing docs, sending a wire. Now it's passive. For three, five, seven, ten 10 years, I'm literally not doing anything. I'm just collecting what some people call mailbox money, passive income, whatever you want to call it. 
So that's the type of stuff I'm after is like you put in the work once or maybe never, and then then that's it. It doesn't require your time. What do you think is one of the best ways to start generating passive income for somebody that's just getting started, might not have a ton of money in to invest? Should they maybe buy vending machines or something along those lines like you do? Or maybe should they put that into a single family rental and grow it that way? What do you think might be the best way for them? I, I kind of go back to what I was mentioning earlier. You know, if you only have 5K, 10K, 15K, I don't, I don't know that, that passive investing is really a, a logical choice. I mean, you can, like for a REIT, a real estate investment trust, publicly traded on the stock market, some have a share price as low as $5. You can go buy a REIT for $5, and you can be a passive investor. I'm not a big proponent of the stock market or REITs. But hey, if I had $5 and I wanted to say I was a passive investor or get started, there's one way. There's also one of your questions earlier was, do you have to be an accredited investor? No. There's some opportunities for non-accredited, sophisticated investors to get started as little as like $5,000. There's these crowdfunding platforms out there and different companies doing these non-accredited funds. If you really want $20 a month passive income, I guess that could be an option for you. But truthfully, though, I I would just double down on on my knowledge and books and networking and podcasts and my career, my income, even if it's W2 and and I don't like my job, I'd be trying to crush that and save as much as I could till I had a substantial amount, 100 grand and then think about, okay, now maybe go passive. What are some ways that somebody who's new could potentially get involved with a syndicator in a way that they don't have to necessarily invest money, but maybe they are just providing value to them? Maybe they're even working for free, but they're just getting involved learning the business. What are some ways that people can do that? When I hit that that FI number, financial independence or whatever, I started pursuing work that was more meaningful to me, work that I could personally benefit from and grow from as a person, as a human. So I didn't have to worry so much about how much am I getting paid? And am I going to get a raise next year? And is there going to be a bonus this quarter? None of that was on my mind. What was on my mind is I I want to know this stuff. One of the first things I did is I went to go work for a brokerage firm. I wanted to learn stocks, bonds, mutual funds, REITs. I thought, man, if I can crush that and real estate, I'll have this whole investing thing down. You know what? I only lasted like nine months doing that, right? I, I literally hated that job. And, uh, and it didn't resonate well with me. I mean, I was already a real estate investor. I saw the power and the benefits of it. And now I'm trying to push these mutual funds that, quite frankly, didn't make any sense to me. And I couldn't sell that to anybody. So I had to quit and just resign from that. So, what I do next, to your point, I went and I worked for a syndication group. They were a newer group, they had an opening. I offered to add value at very low wages and just said, look, I'll do my best. I'll do everything I can. Let me help. And the professional background helped, I guess. But and so, and again, that's what led me to Ashcroft Capital, right? And investor relations. To me, the way I view this, it's not a job. It's not a W 2 job. It's not a full time gig. What it is, is I get to help other people along their path. And coincidentally, when they coincide with Ashcroft, usually on their own, I'm a, a point of contact. I can help explain their deals and, and what it is they do and why and their philosophy and track record. So I can help give back in that type of way, doing what I love anyway, talking about what I talk about anyway, going to networking events that I go to anyway. And it's just a true win-win. And so you just touched on it briefly there, but what exactly does the director of investor relations do for a syndications firm? What does your day-to-day look like? Wow, there is no day-to-day, there is no schedule. <laughs> Thankfully, no cubicle, no nine to five. I go around and I attend a lot of live events. 
you'll probably, if you, if you attend big events nationwide, you'll probably run into me. I'll probably be standing behind an Ashcroft Capital booth somewhere. And you know, maybe I'll be a speaker somewhere, whatever it may be. And so literally just helping answer people's questions, helping connect people to the right people and to the right avenues and things like that. I'm not a capital raiser or anything like that. I just simply am a a helpful resource for folks that want to learn more about what I do. So what is stopping you from going out and starting your own syndication fund? Great question. Knowing myself and knowing that I don't want to be active and knowing how much time commitment and effort that takes, it's starting a business. It's having a job. I mean, however you want to look at it, it takes a tremendous amount of time and effort and resources to pull off a syndication. I know what that takes and just don't want to do it. I just like having more of that flexibility and time freedom. Yeah, I think that's really the most important component there, right? I mean, you probably see it better than anyone else. So you could probably start one pretty successfully. But again, it's going to take a lot of your time and it's going to take a lot of money to do that. Whereas now you have a good thing going, you have a lot of free time, you're able to do what you want. And so you just weigh the benefits versus the cost and it's just not worth it at this point in your life, I suppose. Just knowing yourself, like I said earlier, man, you got to look inward, you got to write this stuff down. You have to understand why. Why do I want to travel? Why do I want to be retired early? Why, why, why? You got to answer that stuff. And it takes some time. I'm not saying just you know, right now, get out a pen and paper and get the answers down. And now tomorrow, you start a whole new life. It takes some soul searching. It's evolving all the time. But that's what I did. And that's what made all the difference. Is there any tools or resources or any specific steps that you'd recommend somebody takes to start that journaling process or that self-discovery process that you're talking about? I've always been a huge fan of Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins. He's got all kinds of stuff different workbooks and CDs and DVDs and programs, seminars, whatever. Everybody's different in how they learn. I started with his box set, Unleash the Power Within. It's like a seven-disc series. And uh, I swear, man, every three, four years, I'm listening to that series again. And I'm always taking new stuff away because your life's always changing, right? New things come up. You live in new areas. You do new jobs, careers. And now you're seeing it from a new perspective and you're getting re-motivated in a different way. Doesn't have to be Tony. I mean, geez, there's probably a thousand people out there that that teach goal setting and stuff like that. I think even like the real estate guys, they do they do a seminar every year specific to goal setting, probably real estate related. I haven't been to that event, but that could be another option. Awesome. Travis, this conversation really has been informative as to how someone can make a transition from active to passive real estate investing and how to find the best syndication deals to invest in. Where can the audience go to connect with you to learn more? Yeah. So you can find me. Probably email's the best. My email is travis at ashcroftcapital.com. You can find me at ashcroftcapital.com as well. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Bigger Pockets. I'm out there. So I'd love to connect uh, with any of your listeners, even if it's not about Ashcroft or syndications and it's just about getting started or house hacking or whatever. I just like to help where I can. If it's something I've done before, I'm happy to help along the journey. The last thing I'll say is that a lot of stuff that we've talked about here on this podcast, vetting teams, vetting markets, finding deals, passive terminology... I have a passive investor guide. It's a free download. It's a PDF. It's 20 pages. And it goes over all this stuff in a lot more detail. It's a great resource. You can get that at ashcroftcapital.com forward slash passive investor. 
I would definitely take Travis up on his offer there. Reach out to him with any questions you have. Give him feedback on the episode. Let him know what you think. Let him know that you heard him here. And I'll be sure to put links to all of Travis's resources, the ebook, the PDF file that he just mentioned in the show notes so you guys can go check it out. Travis, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Robert. Thanks so much. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.